Well, have you ever considered that many businesses uh, actually make their money off of solving our problems? You know, there's big money in solving problems. Our problems get uh, make a lot of money for people. So plumbers solve plumbing problems. Carpenters solve house problems. Tech support solves technology problems. Landscape companies solve yard problems. Accountants solve tax problems. Dentists solve teeth problems. Exterminators solve pest problems. Therapists solve mental and emotional problems. Doctors solve health problems. Mechanics solve car problems, and, and so on. And so you know, think to yourself, you know, what problems do you currently have in your life? If you were to make a list of them, what are the problems in your life right now? And one way to find out is by looking at what do are you praying about? At our Denominations Theology Conference uh, in February, uh, there was one speaker who was talking about prayer, and he said, you know, we often pray about the same old things. It's these six categories of things. We pray about our family. We pray about our future. We pray, pray about our finances. We pray about work or school. We pray about church or ministry. And then whatever current crisis is going on in our life. And he stated that uh, people have said that we go through a crisis about every six months. So, you know, every six months you're kind of changing over. Oh, this is my crisis now. This is my crisis now. So those are the six categories we're often praying about. And can you think of any problems you have in those categories? Problems with your family, problems with your finances, problems with your future, problems at work or at school, problems in church or, or ministry, or pe- things you're leading or min- people you're trying to minister to, or what is the current crisis going on in your life? Are you praying about uh, those things? And when we're solving problems, we want to get to the root cause. We don't want to just fix whatever's at the surface, we want to get down to what is actually causing this. We want to address the actual problem. And painkillers may take the pain away, but they don't take away what was causing the pain. And if you uh, had water damage on your ceiling or something, painting over that water damage doesn't actually fix the leak, it just covers up the surface issue. And we know that covering over something with a band-aid solution is not in the end going to actually fix the problem. It's just going to take it away so we don't see it for a little bit or feel it. And so, is there a root cause to all of our problems? Can we trace all of our problems back to one source? Is it possible that one problem in our lives actually generates all the other problems we experience? And I find that I'm often uh, the biggest problem in my problems. Uh, It's how I handle it. It's my attitude in it. It's lack of patience. It's how I'm seeing the situation. It's what I do with the frustration or the fear or the impatience that I'm experiencing in the midst of this other problem. And so have you ever experienced this? Have you ever made a problem bigger because of how you were handling it or how you were reacting to it? And it's kind of like the snowball effect. You know, stops at the top, starts at the top of a hill, and as the snowball goes down the hill, it gains more snow and gains more speed, and so it gets bigger, and it gets, you know, starts moving faster and quicker. And I can make a small problem bigger by how I handle it. I can fail to handle a problem well, and that only makes it worse. And I can also blow a problem out of, way out of proportion to what it actually is. And many times, I'm the biggest problem in my problems. And so when we ask, you know, what is our biggest problem in life, you know, what if you had a list, which one would be at the priority of like this is the biggest one. If I solve this, you know, other things would be, you know, fine if I solve this thing. And on one level we could say we are our own biggest problems. If we only handled our problems better, that would help a lot. But even higher than that is 
the problem with our relationship with God. Our biggest problem in life is that we are disconnected from God without Jesus. Our relationship with God is broken. That's our biggest problem. If that problem was fixed, we would begin to take care of a lot of all the other problems, uh, or just in how we handle those problems. If we took care of that one thing, it would affect how we handle all of our other problems in life. And so I'm going to set up this little glass, and we're going to imagine like this is our life, and it's filled with all kinds of problems. I hope this works. This is a weak, kind of a light tea, but I injected some food dye into it. And we'll just see what that does during the service, and we'll come back to it. The Bible says our biggest problem is that we lost our relationship with God. We are disconnected from Him, alienated from Him, estranged, separated. And the Bible doesn't only say that we are far from God, but that we are hostile toward Him. It's not just that Oh, God's over there and I kind of don't bother him, but we're actually hostile towards him in the fact that we work against his plans and purposes. We go the opposite way he says to go. Uh, and even more than that, it's not just that we do the wrong things, but we don't want him in charge. It's that we want to be in charge of our own lives. We think, you know, I think I'd be a better person to be in charge of my life. And so this is problem a problem. We were made to reflect what he's like and thus represent his reign and rule on earth. But we fight against what he wants fight against him being in charge of our lives. We don't like anyone telling us what to do, uh, how to behave, uh, what plans we should make. And we want to be on the throne of our lives. And that's a problem because the only person who should be on the throne of our lives is God. He created us. He's the Lord, the creator, father, and king of the whole world. And so this means that we aren't only hostile to God, but God is also hostile to us. These are words the Bible uses. That we're hostile to God in in our sinful nature. But then God's also hostile to us because when we turn against the king and start trying to create a rebel kingdom within his kingdom, well, what's the king going to do with that? He needs to take care of that. And so we stand under God's just condemnation and his righteous wrath. And this is our biggest problem. Alienation, separation, estrangement, condemnation, and disconnection from God. Our relationship with God is a mess, and we made the mess. We are our own biggest problems, and we, in a way, we are God's problem creation. You know, you can say, well, I have a problem student, or I have a problem child. Hopefully you're not saying those things, but, uh, you know, we are God's problem creation. Out of everything God created in Genesis 1 and 2, we are the only creation that has the audacity to tell God, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to not do this thing that you've asked me to do. We're the only ones that tell him no. And so what does all this have to do with Easter? How does this bring us to Easter? Well, Adam and Eve were the first humans. And they decided they didn't want God in charge, and so they did things their own way. And so God sent them out of his presence. And then God chose the family of Abraham, who late, which later became known as the nation of Israel, to bring the blessing of relationship with him back to the world. And Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, reflecting what God is like, representing his kingdom on earth. But they failed. They, they went after other gods. They put their trust in other things and created things. They placed their hope in the same things the world does. They didn't live as God commanded them to live. And their kings did not reflect what God is like. And they did not represent God's kingdom on earth. And so eventually, Israel suffered the consequences of their rebellion against God. They also were removed. God removed his presence from the temple. Foreign nations invaded their land. They were taken out of the land of Israel and they experienced exile from God. But their prophets told of a day when God would bring a new king who would rescue them from this situation. He would truly reflect what God is like, and he would truly represent God's kingdom on earth and bring it 
his reign and rule to earth. And this king would deliver them from their sin. This king would liberate them from all that oppressed them and held them captive. And, but strangely, as the prophets talked about this king, they also said he was going to suffer. This king would be rejected. This king would bear the penalty for his people's rebellion against God. He would stand in their place as their substitute. He would die the death that they deserve for their sin. That he would be exiled and estranged and forsaken in their place. And this part of the king's role was often missed in those who are faithfully reading uh, the Old Testament. And so when, we, when Jesus came onto the scene and people began to believe he was the king, even his followers had a hard time swallowing him saying, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. They had a hard time swallowing that, that at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel, he was going to die. And this didn't make sense. If he's the king who's supposed to establish God's kingdom on earth, how can he die? He cannot reflect and represent God if he's dead. So how is that going to work? Don't you have to be alive to do all that stuff? How can he save, rescue, and deliver others if he's dead and gone? And today we would quickly answer, well, he saves and rescues by dying on the cross. He died for our sins to rescue us from them. He delivers us from sin, Satan, and death by dying the death we deserve. But we need to slow down for a second. Claiming your death has special meaning it's easy to do. You know, I could stand up here and be like, guess what? I'm going to die. You know, or maybe I can make a prediction, you know, 10 years or something. I'm like, it's going to be really significant for you. It's going to do something special for your relationship with God. Like, my death is actually, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. My death is going to make it possible for you to know God. And you guys should rightly all be like, he sounds a little crazy. <laughs> he sounds like a lunatic. Or he's just lying straight up. It's an easy claim to make. Everyone dies. And so you can easily predict your death. I mean, Jesus was stirring up trouble, and so he's like, no, I'm going to get there, this is what's going to happen, and, you know, like, probability chance. I'm like, in all probability, I'm going to die. Uh, and so he predicts his death, and he's like, whoa, that was pretty impressive. But everyone dies. So predicting your death isn't too big of a deal. So what proof, if I was claiming these things, could I give... Uh, to the claim that my death is going to do something special for you. Do you see the issue here? How would you prove that your death is going to do something special for other people? And talk is cheap. Jesus said his death would benefit all these people. He said that he was giving his life as a payment to free people from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. But why should we believe him? Jesus died like many other people died during the Roman Empire. On a cross, that wasn't something special. Dying on a cross wasn't special. Even people thinking you're the Messiah wasn't special. There was other people who died on the cross who were rebelling against Rome, and they aren't. We're not, you know, celebrating their birth and death and resurrection today. And so, this was Rome's favorite way of dealing with people who rebelled against the empire. And this is what the Israel's religious leaders accused Jesus of. He's misleading the nation. He's telling people not to pay taxes. And he's saying he himself is the king, which is putting him in opposition to Caesar. And even though a Pontius Pilate said, I don't find him guilty of these things, he eventually handed Jesus over to the fate of everyone who rebels against the king, who tells people not to pay taxes, who says they're a king in opposition to Caesar. He got crucified. There's lots of people who had that happen to them. So if this was all that happened in the story of Jesus, what could we say about him? He was the son of unremarkable, unimpressive, poor Jewish parents. Where he lived was equally unremarkable and unimpressive. A rural village in ancient Israel named Nazareth. And people thought, what good can really come from Nazareth? That's said right in the Bible. It's like, Nazareth? What? What, is, what, what can come out of there? 
And around 38 years of age, he began a traveling preaching ministry. And Jesus taught people about the kingdom of God. He implied, or at least didn't deny, that he was the king of that kingdom, the Jewish Messiah. He spoke mostly to Jews, but to some non-Jewish people as well. He had a different interpretation of many of the laws of the Old Testament than the religious leaders had. So he got into debates with them because they thought, you're breaking these laws. You need to do it this way. And he would get into these debates about how the law is supposed to be obeyed and interpreted. And at least two occasions, uh, he came to the temple in Jerusalem and he flipped over all the tables of people that were there uh, selling sacrifices for people to sacrifice in the temple so they didn't have to carry the animal all the way from their hometown to Jerusalem. You could buy it there. And there was people exchanging currency, like, oh, I have this type of currency, can I exchange it so I can go buy an animal? He flipped over those tables there of all those people doing that. And this would have taken place in front of thousands of people who had traveled there for Passover, like all from the land of Israel, people traveling there for the Feast of Passover. And eventually the religious leaders had enough. They arrested him, put him on trial, and asked the Roman official Pontius Pilate to crucify him. So who is Jesus? Well, from the religious leader's perspective, he was a radical teacher who broke the law of God. He was a threat to their own status and system and power because he challenged their way of doing things. And who was he to Pilate? He's another Jewish rebel. Even though Pilate didn't believe he was guilty of being a rebel, he was just another Jewish rebel. Okay, we'll have him crucified but I'm going to wash my hands of it. And so then how did a worldwide movement spread because of this dead Jewish criminal who came from no-name parents and a no-name town? Why do we even know his name, much less have several holidays celebrating his existence? And the reason is because Jesus did not only predict he would die, but he would be raised from the dead three days later. Jesus didn't only claim his death was saved, but he claimed that he would not stay dead. It's easy to predict your own death, everyone dies, but it's not very easy to predict your own resurrection, your own rising from the dead. It's easy to claim your death will have meaning and significance for everyone who is devoted to you. Anyone can claim that, but not everyone rises from the dead. And after Jesus rose from the dead, his closest followers didn't expect him to do that after his death. They huddle up in a room after he died, afraid that they were next. Well, we're followers of the person they just crucified for rebelling against Rome. So we're next. We're going to get the same faith as him. And none of them really believed Jesus would die, and they certainly didn't believe he would come back from the dead. They thought the gig was up, show's over, pack up and go back home, go back to your day jobs. And what changed for them, and what started a religion that has spread all over the world and through 20 centuries, was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And these men and women changed their beliefs overnight. And there's four ways they changed their beliefs. They had a new belief about resurrection. Many Jewish people uh, believed there would be a resurrection from the dead, but they didn't believe that it would happen to one person in the middle of history. It would happen at the end of history, and it would happen to all these Jewish people. But now they changed their... All these, these Jewish men that were around Jesus uh, started believing someone has been raised from the dead in the middle of history. They changed their beliefs. And non-Jewish people, Gentiles, didn't believe in resurrection at all. But as they heard this message about Jesus, they started to change their beliefs to believe in resurrection. Second, first they had a new belief about resurrection. Second, they had a new belief about God. Jewish people believed that there is one God, and he is not a man. You are absolutely not supposed to worship a human being. Any created thing should not be worshipped. The Creator is only supposed to be worshipped. But after Jesus' death and resurrection... All of a sudden, they're worshiping Jesus as, as God, worshiping as Lord, bowing down before him, calling him 
names that only are attributed to God, just saying he does things that only God could do. So, you know, think about how uh, you would, how much would it take you to believe that somebody you had spent you know, three years with or more, you know, listening to them snore or, you know, sleeping, watching them eat, maybe they maybe juice chew his mouth open or something, and it's like, this guy, what would it take for, to convince you that this guy you've been traveling around with for three years was the Son of God, God in the flesh. And for non-Jewish people, they believed in a whole uh, group of gods, but as they heard the gospel, they said, nope, all those are fake, one God. And so these people are changing their beliefs about God. And third, they had a new belief about the Messiah. Jews believed the Messiah was going to come and reign in glory, God's kingdom on earth, but all of a sudden they're saying, no, no, the scriptures all along said he needed to suffer and die and then enter into glory. And they changed their beliefs about the Messiah. Fourth, both Jews and non-Jews risked their lives by calling Jesus Lord, Son of God, and Savior. And in the Roman Empire, there's only one person who was supposed to be called those things, and that was Caesar, the Emperor of Rome. He was called, in writing, Lord, Son of God, and Savior. And so someone else, those things, was asking for death. You don't call anybody else, but how dare you say that about the emperor? It was treason. You were saying that someone else is king. You're giving allegiance to them first and foremost instead of Caesar. And everyone knew what Rome did to rebels. They crucified them. So if you're a Christian today, all of these are beliefs we take for granted because we've read the New Testament our entire life. Yeah, of course there's one God. Of course Jesus is God in the flesh. Well, of course, you know, we call him Son of God, Lord, and Savior. Of course, all these things uh, we do. Uh, but the men who wrote the New Testament would have never written what they wrote if it wasn't for an event that changed their lives and changed their beliefs. And the only reason they wrote what we find in the New Testament is that they are convinced Jesus is alive. They reoriented their beliefs and they reoriented their lives around it. And we may ask, was it a lie? that they made up. Maybe they just made it up. Maybe they're like, really? Like, we're going to start this thing and it's going to be great. We're going to keep this lie going. There's an interesting quote by um, Charles Coulson who was involved in Watergate. And this is what this website said about quoting him. It said, Charles Coulson, who was part of the Watergate scandal and later converted to Christianity, said this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because twelve men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled twelve of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me twelve apostles could keep alive for forty years? So his perspective is... Twelve people involved in Watergate, three weeks they didn't hold up. And these disciples, even at the cost of their lives, held it, uh, this belief. So was it a hallucination? Okay, maybe they didn't really see Jesus. Maybe they're just real, maybe they saw something and they were really convinced Jesus is alive based on what they saw. They hallucinated or whatever, you know, they were in their grief or the desire for Jesus to be alive. Their, their mind played tricks on them. But hallucinations that involve twelve people are don't even know if they exist, let alone the 500 people that the Apostle Paul mentioned in the First Corinthians reading we had, that five appeared to 500 people. How could all those people have that same hallucination? And Jesus proved to them that he was there in the flesh by saying, touch me. At first they thought they saw a spirit, touch me. 
I'll pr- prove it. You'll see, you can see the nail holes in my hand. You can see, see the hole in my side. You know, and he's like, okay. You know, they still were a little weirded out. He's like, give me some of that fish. And you eat some fish. It's like hallucinations do not, cannot be touched. They can't eat fish off your table. Could it be that they're mistaken? They went to the wrong tomb, found it empty, and assumed Jesus was raised from the dead. Like, what? What? He's gone. It was, oh, it's just a, the wrong tomb. You went to the wrong address. You know, your Google Maps got messed up or something. Uh, and, but the gospel comes to make it clear that even when they saw the empty tomb, they still didn't say, oh, he must have been raised from the dead. They, had, they were wondering, where's his body? Where'd he go? What, what, what'd you do with his body? That's what they're asking. They're not saying, Jesus is raised from the dead because his tomb is empty. They're saying, somebody took his body. Someone robbed his grave. They didn't see a tomb with no body and jumped straight to the conclusion, oh, Jesus must be raised. Uh, they had to be convinced of it by seeing Jesus in the flesh. And so what's so important about Jesus' resurrection? Let's turn to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to focus on the eight verses in the second reading, verses 12 through 19. And these words were written by the Apostle Paul, who himself had his life dramatically changed because of the resurrection. Before the resurrection, uh, before he met Jesus, the risen Lord, Jesus was already resurrected, and so this Christian movement is spreading. Uh, Paul thought, Jesus is a fraud, uh, Christianity is a sham, and this is threatening our Jewish religion. I need to stomp this out. I need to take care of this thing. So he was murdering Christian disciples. He was pulling them out of their houses, uh, watching them be stoned, and watching them have all these things done. So Paul is like, no, this is all fake. This is, these people are crazy. But he had an encounter with the risen Jesus that totally changed his life. He went from executioner of Christians to evangelist for Christ. He went from murderer of Christians to missionary for Christ. What Paul writes here in these verses, verses 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, gives us our big idea for today. And it's this. If Christ's tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is empty. If Christ's tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is empty. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, Paul wrote this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom we did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And the issue in the church of Corinth... Uh, was that some people were denying that people will rise from the dead one day. Like, no, that's not going to happen. And so Paul shows them, well, let me show you where that thinking takes you. Let me show you the logic of what you're saying, that, of your denying things. You know, the good news includes the resurrection of the dead at the return of Christ, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And Paul wants to show, here's the implications of you believing that dead people are not raised to life. He says, if you deny that there's a resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And the word vain means empty. It could mean something that's empty of content, empty of meaning, empty of value, empty of purpose, empty of effectiveness. And so he's saying, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the preaching of the gospel is empty. And your faith is empty. Our big idea for today is if Christ's tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is empty. And Paul here is telling them that the gospel is empty if Christ's 
has not been raised. There is good, no good news without Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus is still dead in the tomb, then the gospel has no meaning, no value, no effectiveness. There's no reason to tell other people about Jesus. He's just another dead person. There's no reason that I should be standing up here talking about him. My preaching or your preaching, telling other people about Jesus, is empty. It's meaningless. It's worthless. And Christianity is not good advice or a good way to live. It's good news about something that has actually happened, that changes everything. But if that thing didn't actually happen, then Jesus was a fraud, and Christianity is a sham, and we should reject all of it and move on with our lives, find something else to do. And Paul also says that if Christ's body is still in the tomb, then our faith is empty. It has no value. It is ineffective. It's pointless. And if we put our trust in Jesus, if we're surrendering our lives to him, if we rest in his death on our behalf for our sins and the salvation and forgiveness it brings, but he is still dead in the tomb, then our trust is empty. It does nothing for us. So let's continue reading in verse 17. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And the word futile here is nearly a synonym to vain. It, it means idle, empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, lacking truth. And so here Paul is saying, if Christ has not been raised, if his corpse is rotting in the tomb, then your faith is futile. It's useless. It's powerless. It's fruitless. It's empty. It does nothing for you. If Christ isn't alive, then trusting in him will do nothing for us. We might as well stop trusting in him for anything. And Paul makes the result of empty faith clear. He says, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And you can say Jesus died for your sins all you want, but if he has not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. He hasn't saved you from anything. You're still under God's wrath, under God's condemnation, condemned, alienated, separated, and estranged. Your relationship with God is still broken. There's a wall between you and him that's been built by our constant denial of his kingship over our lives, our constant failure to live according to his ways. And if Christ's tomb isn't empty... And Christianity is empty. Everything it teaches is empty. And Paul continues in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And falling asleep is a gentle way of saying they died, but it's also a way of looking at hope. They've just fallen asleep. They're going to wake up again one day. And the teaching of the New Testament is that those who trust in Christ go directly into his presence when they die, and one day will be resurrected with new bodies when Jesus returns. But if Christ has not been raised, they have died in their sins. They believe in a false Messiah for their right standing with God. They bet on the wrong horse. They put their eggs in the wrong basket. They're lost and gone forever, condemned in God's righteous judgment. And if Christ's tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is empty. Finally, in verse 19, Paul says, If in Christ we have hope that we... Sorry, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The followers of Jesus lived with the hope of a life beyond this life. And this is what motivated them to live the way that they did. It's what gave them reason to lose their lives, to give up and sacrifice and suffer persecution on Jesus' behalf. It's, it's what inspires us to not gather up all we can on earth for ourselves, because we're saying, this isn't all there is. That there will be death and we'll be with Jesus, but then there will be a resurrection from the dead where we will live in a new creation with him. So imagine you were sitting uh, in a movie theater and you're watching the life of a Christian. And 
But an, as an audience member, you know that Jesus died and he was never resurrected. He died, routed away at the tomb, he was never resurrected. You know that Jesus was not who he said he was. You know that Jesus' death did not provide forgiveness for sins. You know that Jesus cannot make us right with God. You know that trusting in Jesus will not bring you into God's kingdom or into God's presence. You know that when this Christian dies, whose life you're watching in the movie theater on the screen, they will perish. They will not just fall asleep for a time until their body is raised from the dead. But as you watch this movie about the life of a Christian, you're seeing them live their life, you see them reassuring themselves, God loves me and forgives me, no matter what I do. They sacrifice their money and their time for Jesus' mission. They're trying to convince other people to follow Jesus. You see them giving up things on earth because they know I'm going to inherit a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation when Jesus returns. You watch them lose loved ones who have trusted in Christ and they tell themselves, they're with Jesus now and I will again see them one day. As they struggle through sicknesses and losses and pain, they still have a smile on their face because they say, this is not the end of the story, that Jesus is going to set everything right one day. When the end of their life comes and their body is failing, they're at peace because their hope is in seeing Jesus and one day having a new body. You would pity this person. You would feel sorry for them. Why? Because they're wasting, they're basing their whole life on a lie. They're trusting in someone who's dead and gone and can't help them. Their hope, hope for the future rests on someone who's a fraud and a fake. Every decision they make is made in light of what they believe, that Jesus died for my sins, he's resurrected, he's Lord of the world, he's going to return someday, he's going to set everything right. They gave up what others on earth pursued for a liar. They sacrificed their time, money, and possessions for a fake. They gave their lives for the mission of someone who wasn't even who he said he was. And all along they thought they were good with God because Jesus' death made them good with God. But in reality, they weren't. Our big idea for today is that if, Jesus, if Christ's tomb isn't empty, then Christianity is empty. You should reject it. You shouldn't be a Christian because everything Christianity claims, promotes, and believes is based on a lie if Jesus is still dead in his tomb. But let's just flip it around. What if Christ's tomb isn't, or is empty? What if Christ's tomb is empty? If Jesus was resurrected from the dead, then what is true? What does it mean if Jesus really is alive and not dead? What does that open up? When we think about the words, Paul used the words vain and futile. When we think about uh, this little image here of this, you know what? How much ability do you think that this balloon has to lift my water bottle? It would be pretty vain and futile for me to try to get this water bottle up in the air with this balloon. You know, I took, had two balloons for the birthday. They were fully inflated. I couldn't even get a, a cork. I was trying to get a cork to float around on them. So I know there's no chance that this is going to come up out of this partially deflated balloon. It's futile. That's vanity to try and do that. In the same way, if I was to take one of these chairs and, you know, you could see, uh, you know, all those legs are cracked and, you know, or it's made out of cardboard or something. I'm like, I'm going to sit on this chair. You all be like, no, 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 no. You know, it's futile to think that that chair can hold your weight. That's, that's vain. You know, don't do that. This is empty to think. You're, you have an empty belief in thinking this cardboard chair can hold you up. Or I have an empty belief thinking this balloon can lift this up. And so if we're putting our faith in something that can't do that, 
then it's vain. It's meaningless. It's futile. But flip that around. Can Jesus, if Jesus really is raised from the dead, he can lift us up. He can hold us. He's something that can support us that we can stand on. So we just need to consider what the, the opposite of what Paul has said. The gospel is not empty, but is announcing something that actually happened that changes everything. He has came to this world to seek and to save lost sinners. That's how the Bible talks about it. By his death, he paid the penalty we deserve for our sins. By his resurrection, he frees us from the power of sin. He began a new world of which we can be a part. By his return, he will free us from the presence of sin altogether. And spreading this good news is not empty, fruitless, and pointless, but it's the best news you can tell anyone. Our faith and devotion to Christ is not empty, worthless, and ineffective, but we have placed our faith in the Lord of the universe and the Savior of all who trust in him. We are no longer dead in our sins and trespasses, but we've been forgiven and granted new life to live free of them. We will see those who died in Christ. Again, we can be assured that they're in the presence of Jesus now. Of all people, we are most, the most blessed. If Jesus' tomb is empty, then Christianity is full. It's full of hope, full of peace, full of joy, full of power, full of grace and mercy and truth. If Jesus' tomb is empty, then we can be full of the fruit of love and joy and peace and hope and purpose and strength if Jesus is alive we have been given every spiritual blessing in him we lack nothing if Jesus has been raised from the dead then our greatest problem has been solved of our disconnection from God what is our greatest problem how do we put it in the Bible's terms from the perspective of Israel's sacrificial system our sin made us dirty and unable to enter God's presence. But Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf has cleansed us of our sins. His sacrifice also satisfied the just wrath of God for our sin. From the perspective of the ancient marketplace, we were slaves to sin, but Jesus paid the ransom to free us from slavery, so now we belong to God. From the perspective of relationships, we had a broken relationship with God. We rejected Him as our God, our Creator, the ruler of our lives. So we were estranged from Him. We needed to be reconciled, and reconciliation requires Forgiveness, And when someone forgives you, they pay for the wrong you did to them and don't make you pay them back for it. You don't get payback. Jesus' death paid the debt we owed so we could be reconciled to God through forgiveness. From the perspective of the law court, we were guilty and condemned by God because we had broken his law. But Jesus' death paid the penalty for our crimes so we could be declared righteous instead of guilty. And from the perspective of the battlefield, Jesus' death defeated the demonic forces of evil and delivered us from the, their dominion. His death on the cross was his decisive victory against them. And none of this would be true except for the resurrection. It's almost like, in a way, the re- Jesus' life and his death, it's all, if you're like starting a business, it's like you were you do all this stuff to start it up, and then you have the ribbon-cutting ceremony. And it's almost like the resurrection is the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Look, look at all what I did to get it ready for you to have a relationship with God, to be a part of God's kingdom. And now, it's all set up when we do the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and it's, you know, it's finished. We can, you can come in. None of this would be true except for the resurrection. But because he is alive, sin no longer has power over our past, our present, our future. Death has been defeated. Satan no longer holds us captive. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the living temple where we meet God. Jesus is the priest who brings us before God. Jesus is the Sabbath rest for our souls. Jesus is the new Moses leading us in a new exodus. 
Jesus is the greater David who rules over God's kingdom. Jesus is the greater Solomon who is more wise and more rich. Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the cornerstone, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's the image of the invisible, invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one mediator between God and man. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He's the word become flesh, the bread of life who satisfies, the vine who gives life, the light of the world who shines in the darkness, the door who protects God's sheep, the resurrection of the life. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lamb who was slain and takes away the sin of the world. He's the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to the Father only through Him. Jesus is our King, our Lord, our Savior, who is raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, and above every other name, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so that's what's true, that we know is true of Jesus because he's been raised. And as we come back to our, hey, look at work. It's blue now, so if we think about all of our problems, the problems we have in life, our greatest problem in life is that we're disconnected from God. And so what's the solution to that? Well, none of us can solve that problem. But God has solved it. And so if you imagine that tea bag was your relationship with God, coming into your life like, I have been made right with God now. I am loved. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled. Jesus is who he said he was. I can have full confidence and faith in him that now that affects all the rest of your life. It bleeds out. It's not just like, oh, cool. That tea bag is just going to hang out there. But i got like a hundred other tea bags that i got to take care of. No, that tea bag you know, saturates the whole thing. It goes and uh, spreads throughout your life. And so the solution to that one problem affects all the other problems, how we see all the other problems, how we interact with all the other problems, and what we do with all the other problems. It affects our attitude and our reactions and how we feel. And so at the end of the day, Jesus is life, death, resurrection, ascension, his seated at the right hand of God, and his return. All this, the gospel, is a, if we had a chair, it's something that we can really rest on, that we can say, you know, do I have to keep striving? Do I have to keep running from God? Do I have to keep being afraid? Do I have to keep acting like I have all these other big problems? It's like, no, my biggest problem has been solved. And now what can I do? I can, I can, I can rest on what Jesus has done. And I can be sure it's going to hold me up because he didn't just die, he was raised from the dead. And I can be sure I can stand on this. I can, this will hold me up. Jesus will hold us up in the midst of all other problems. And we can know that Jesus also lifts us up and raises us up in this balloon. It can actually go to the ceiling, as you can see. Maybe. Jesus is better than that. But, you know, Jesus can actually lift us up. Is that we were in this, Scripture describes us as being in the grave, or being dead, being in a bog, being in the mud and the muck. And Jesus can raise us up from that deadness, raise us up from our grave. And he can really do it. Because he didn't just die, but he was also raised from the dead. And this, I chose these verses because it is so difficult, I think, for us sometimes. Even for me, I was like praying about this and thinking through it. And like the resurrection just seems like something that 
is hard to grasp. It's like, why does this matter to me? And it's like, none of, everything we believe would, be, would not be true if Jesus was not raised from the dead. So let's join in prayer together and ask that God would let us really feel it and see it, because Jesus is alive. Father, thank you that the good news is true news. That everything we read in Scripture can be trusted. We can base our lives upon it. We can base our lives upon the Gospel. That it was a real event that really happened isn't just good advice of what we should do or how we should live. It isn't just a good way to live, but it is something about that happened that changed the world. And so if you let that truth change our lives, would you bring it deep into our hearts? Just something we pray. Amen.